Um, appreciate everybody joining here uh, this episode of Mike Drop, where we're going to be launching with a good friend of mine who's extremely uh, effective at what it is that she does, and she's going to be sharing with us some of the activities that she has been engaged with and consuming her life over the course of, if not her entire career, specifically the past couple of weeks. Jody Hicks has been a friend of mine for quite a long time. I'm guessing probably 15 plus years now. Jody, maybe a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, took the role as the chief executive officer and president of Planned Parenthood of California um, just about a little over a year ago. I think Jody, if my time frame is correct, but I know that your career was really catalyzed and began with the fight for women's rights and abortion rights specifically. And you're probably one of the nation's premier experts on not just this issue, but how to mobilize and focus people's energies to to direct specific outcomes as they relate uh, to these fights. And 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 listeners today, I think, are particularly um, concerned about not only their rights, but how this could impact the midterms. I know that you are, I believe, in Long Beach today with a whole roster of some of the most powerful politicians in Sacramento. You're on a bus tour, I believe, rallying people um, in common cause to make sure that this, this energy is corralled and focused. And I'm hoping you can share a little bit about what that energy looks like, um, what it is that you're feeling on the ground, and what the general sense of the movement is here that Planned Parenthood is, is trying to uh, um, again, focus and energize in the coming weeks and days. Thanks, Mike. It's it's really good to hear your voice um, and looking forward to seeing you again soon. And let me just start by saying it's it's great to hear be here with my good friend. You know, today was a trying day. Um, we have been touring the state for the last two weeks on a, a bright pink bus, a powered by pink bus tour. Um, it started really as an awareness tour because at the time when we were first planning it, we knew what was likely happening at the Supreme Court. But a lot of folks uh, either, you know, didn't understand uh, what was happening and how soon or didn't believe that the Supreme Court was li- this likely to overturn Roe. Um, after the the draft was leaked, um, people are aware. So we're it's definitely been more of a of a tour where we're meeting with community leaders, we're having press conferences and rallies, and really trying to mobilize folks that are having a lot of feelings um, from sadness to anger to some confusion, and really trying to strategically target that into actions that we can take. And you know, today, we're, we're having the final stop, which is here in Long Beach, which was a rally, I think we're, we're calling it more of a community meeting and mobilization, um, you know, last night or yesterday's um, Texas mass shooting has sort of left all of us, I think, um, feeling really broken. And uh, but it's a good reminder that that we have a lot of work to do. And a lot of that work is really just stemming around standing up for justice and, and what we need to do. And violence is a part of that. Reproductive justice is all about making sure that you can make decisions that are best for your families and, and keeping them safe. And so um, yesterday just puts a finer point, I think, on, on all of the work we have to do. Jody, you, you and I have talked a lot over the course of the past few months, and, and I, I do want to let listeners know that 
Uh, you and I did visit on the topic of Roe back in early spring, and, and what you predicted was exactly right, that this was coming, that there would be kind of this shock element to it. And I know that you've been planning on some of uh, what people can specifically do to be engaged, but more importantly, be empowered. And, and I want to talk a little bit about that dynamic in light of what you just mentioned. We're living in this time where there's this clear attack and erosion on our rights, on our constitutional rights. I don't, I don't know of any time um, with the possible exception of maybe prohibition where a constitutional right has been taken away from us. And of course that one was, was given back. Um, but, but also just the, the, the violence that, that is kind of shocking our, our nation and our soul when people are tired, how do you keep them focused? How do you keep them energized? How do you keep the fight going? Because the stakes are so high. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think there's a couple of things. One is we really are here in California trying to, we started in September when Texas banned abortion in the state of Texas, which is clearly unconstitutional. And the Supreme Court, by allowing that to happen, really by their inaction, really set the stage for what was going to happen with this Mississippi case. And so in California, we just mobilized insofar as what do we need to do to get ready for that, really to take care of patients, knowing that that um, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, we're, we're really talking about 26 states that are poised to institute bans. It's affecting 36 million women that will have to travel outside of the state they live in. And really looking at it from that perspective, you've got patients that we saw in Texas never traveling outside of the state before themselves ever. And now they have to navigate a public health system that's hostile to their own needs and also navigate travel. And so, you know, we just got to work and put together a council and and really um, we put, put out a report with 45 recommendations. How can California be a reproductive freedom state? We've been working through those, both in the the legislative um, ways and through the budget. And I think that set the stage really for the tone of what we need to do, which is one, um, get to work and and look at patients first, but also be a beacon of hope for people right now because it is really daunting. And then then three, give people a, a place and a way to mobilize. And I think... You know, all of this is really predicated on this idea, you know, I know how you old you are, Mike, and you know how old I am, but for almost all of our lives and an entire generation, Roe v. Wade is 50 years old. It's 50 years of precedent that they're overturning in order to take rights away. And, and how to sort of wrap our minds around the massive impact of that, the impact of our children and a generation behind us are growing up with less rights than we have, it's really hard to grapple with. And at the same time, people are going to get really hurt really soon when this goes into effect. And so I think giving something, you know, a place of action where people can do something to take care of folks right now, but also reminding people of elections matter every single time every single one and we need to be talking about that giving people that information and and something that they can do because at the end of the day 
70 to 80 percent of the of people across the country do not want Roe to be overturned. They do not want this constitutional right to be taken away. And so the only way to sort of roll back what is going to be generational repair is for really everyone. And I say this, especially in light of what happened yesterday and continued inaction on the parts of the of, of our those policy, same policymakers that are that are putting in these abortion bans. You know, we can't be bystanders right now. We just cannot. We have to meet the moment. We have to be part of a movement and we have to take action. Are you feeling a different energy in the movement that you've been involved in for the, at least the past 30 plus years? Um, is, there, is, there, is there something different about this moment that you can, you can feel and, and maybe quantify for us? Yeah, I mean, I think when in 2016, when, when uh, Trump was elected and the first thing he said he was going to do was defund Planned Parenthood and take away Title X and, and really do harm in any way that he could through executive order, you really saw, you know, the women's marches and people taking to the streets and were really angry I think the difference is, and this is why I get very emotional about it right now, is as we're as we're really poised in in you know a short month for 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 what we have been talking about to become a reality. When I'm talking to folks, um, they're real sad and, and honestly really scared, and um, and that's from not just patients that we know and and we're seeing already from out of state. But also for providers and, and for all of us doing this work when it's, it's really such a mission to make sure that people have access to decisions that affect not just themselves and their, and their bodies, which is obviously a fundamental right that's important, but it affects their futures and their future economic and educational opportunities. It affects their families and, you know, it's something for you and I to think about in in this way, too. It's, you know, you were talking about half the country now instituting laws where people can't get the, the care that they may need um, and how that affects a generation of doctors and how they're trained, how it affects a generation of college students and, 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 and people with new jobs and what where they go and where they can live. So I think the impact is is really deep and people are, are starting to understand how deep those, um, what those laws are going to do, not just for people in other states, which I think is how it felt with Texas. But when you're talking about half the country and those patients have to go somewhere, everybody's impacted, not just um, from a very fundamental civil rights way, but really in a, in a practical sense. And, you know, we're learning about that and we just need people to, you know, stand up and take action against it. And I know there's a wide range of emotions, Jody, that are going on right now um, b- beyond traditional activists. This, this issue has really galvanized, I think, a lot of people who never believed that this was actually a threat, that this was never actually going to happen. I know in my conversations with a lot of Republican women specifically that, um, you know, they they were maybe more than comfortable supporting the party because they never really thought that these rights were in jeopardy. What can people do in the next 30 days before the decision comes down to engage uh, in this fight? Um, And then even after that, what what, what can people do that that are feeling this this range of emotions from from anger to sadness to worry how can they put that into action what can they do specifically 
Well, I think for right now, what we're asking people to do is number one, donate, donate to providers like Planned Parenthood, but also donate to abortion funds. There's abortion funds in every state. They're the folks, um, you know, Planned Parenthood does this too, but there's funds available and they're the, they're the ones that are helping people travel, um, helping set up logistics like hotels where people need to get to the state of California um, or other states. So, so make sure and donate. Um, we launched a sayabortion.com say abortion campaign. We're encouraging people to talk about abortion and talk about it differently. Talk about abortion as healthcare and tell stories. We're going to need to put some humanity back in to this conversation and what it means when people are denied access to, to health care that affects their the trajectory of their their future and their lives and their health and their dignity. Um, and then obviously vote, but but not just enough for you to vote, you know, telling your friends and neighbors voting in every election, but also making sure that everyone you vote for is very, very clearly pro-abortion rights. Jody, I know uh, you've got to go because you're at this bus rally um, working with other elected officials to kind of raise awareness in Southern California right now. Um, I, I can tell you, I think the audience listening here um, is going to have a lot of questions. Maybe if we could take those writing to you. Planned Parenthood has... Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of reach, a lot of capacity. Uh, not enough because this fight is probably the biggest fight that you guys have ever been engaged. Basic question is: How can people get in touch with Planned Parenthood to get more information on how they can uh, help out and be involved? Awesome! Just go to our website. the The Say Abortion ca- campaign is sayabortionca.com, and then sayabortioncalifornia.com. Sorry, um, and then you know. Planned Parenthood Affiliates of California, you can go on our website and you can certainly email or follow us on Twitter. You can follow the bus tour on Instagram as well. We're hashtag powered by pink. But they're calling for me to go run up on stage. So I got to go, Mike. It was so good to hear your voice. Thanks so much, Jody. Take care. Keep up the good work and we'll follow up soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, guys. Thanks. That was Jody Hicks. Appreciate everybody's... Um, flexibility here and understanding kind of Jody's time commitments. Obviously you can imagine what her life has kind of turned into um, in the past few weeks and months. And I can guarantee you it will only get uh, a little bit crazier. Um, what I wanted to do was first thank everybody uh, for coming. I'm familiar faces here in the listeners group. A lot of people who have been tremendously supportive uh, of me and my work and the organizations that I've been involved with. Uh, your help has kind of helped me kind of find the fuel to kind of keep going on. And I wanted to make this a little bit more of a community. Um, I think many of you know, I try to be as accessible as I possibly can. Um, often to, to my detriment, a lot of folks kind of remind me that I'm probably being a little bit too accessible. Um, oftentimes in the form of kind of um, uh, Twitter threads, answering questions as often as I could on a variety of topics or um, responding to your questions uh, when you reach out to me directly. Uh, Call-in, this app is a little bit unique in that it's gonna allow us to have a little bit more direct discussion uh, on a wide variety of topics. I'm gonna be asking you guys to reach out to me and send me ideas for those topics, but I also wanna kind of build a a sort of a family here so that you are all comfortable in raising topics um, that you're comfortable with 
um, at, at, at any time. Um, we obviously want to stay on topic because I'm going to be bringing in a wide range of guests, but I want this to be an opportunity for you guys to get uh, a better sense of kind of the work that I'm engaged in. And I think for the first time, really get a strong sense of what it is that political consultants do, um, especially when we're doing work at the presidential, gubernatorial, congressional level. A lot of what is done this afternoon in this profession seems to be kind of done in the shadows. Um, and, and most of the time, I always I, I, I thought that that was simply because a lot of what we do is, is a little bit unsexy. A lot of it is data work. A lot of it is targeting work. Um, but over the course of my career, I've realized that a lot of people take a really keen interest in what it is that we do. And I want to open that up, uh, you know, kind of lift up the lid of Pandora's box here, show you what's inside, because I think it will really offer some keen insight into, into how our democratic system actually works. Um, so feel free to ask any of those questions. Again, I've tried to be as open uh, as, I, as I could be over the past few years about recognizing some of uh, the issues and concerns that you have. I think that when you come to a greater understanding, the feedback that you all have given me is that you feel a little bit calmer, you feel a little bit better, um, because uh, I can kind of help point at what the data is telling us, what the polling is telling us, what the trend lines look like, and what the focus of the campaigns um, is, and what they're doing, and what their objectives are. And with that understanding comes a little bit more certainty on what is and what isn't happening. So if you're interested, go ahead and uh, tap in as a caller if you do have any questions specifically. Um, if you don't or if I don't get any at the moment, it looks like uh, Inna's in the um, queue right now. What I can do is kind of keep talking a little bit about some of the developments that Jody broached on, the first being this dramatic change that is going to be coming probably in the next 30 days uh, with the Roe Wade decision and it's overturning, it's pending uh, overturning. Um, but also, of course, the, um, the horrible news that we got yesterday with the shooting in Texas coming on the heels of the week's prior shooting, shootings in not only Buffalo, but in Orange County, California, in Houston. Um, and, and again, the, 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 the cascading effect that this is having on our psyche and our ability to kind of have the strength to keep fighting for a country and for the values and for the rights that we have come to expect as Americans and will increasingly have to demand as Americans as these fundamental rights and values are increasingly chipped um, away at. So um, I know that there's also a, um, a feature where you can ask uh, questions uh, at the bottom. Um, but also, um, again, feel free to jump in the queue if you do have any questions. Um, the live chat bottom, you can see at the bottom there. Um, and I don't. what's funny is I know so many of you guys by your social media handles, but I don't know specific names. So Bruce Monkey, Alice, I know that you're, you're a, a longtime favorite, really engaged in a lot of our conversations. It feels a little bit odd uh, calling you that because I'm pretty sure it's probably not your God-given name. But if it is, I apologize. Um, but you're reflecting on, on mentioning the budget and, and healthcare professionals that will want to be educated in California. Um, are we budgeting for more healthcare student spaces? Uh, I want to grab this question because I actually came to know and work with, with Jody Hicks when she worked as a lobbyist for the California Medical Association. Um, I'm sorry, hold a quick second. Um, let me allow you guys to jump in here. 
I'm looking for the phone system. And I'll get right back to that question as it related to healthcare budgeting, because we do not have nearly enough physicians in the state of California for a whole host of reasons, um, not the least of which is the changing nature of healthcare is uh, requiring medical students to be um, perhaps disproportionately encumbered by enormous sums of students' debt in a profession where the ability to recoup costs over the course of your lifetime have been severely diminished, especially and particularly in rural areas. And in those rural areas, healthcare concerns generally, I'm not just talking about women's healthcare, women's issues here, but generally are extremely difficult um, to come by. So, um, yeah, there's a, there's a real problem. I know that there has been a concerted effort in California. Our budget situation is probably a little bit unique because of the nature of, um, of the way that we developed our tax system to um, provide uh, not only the building of more medical schools, but also for the provision of healthcare access uh, to women in need of abortion services, regardless of status. And by regardless of status, what I mean is not just undocumented status, provision for, uh, for, for, for um, women who may be here uh, undocumented as immigrants, but actually the provision of services for women from other states who can't either afford to travel or, provide, or pay for the services themselves California is taking a very progressive position of um, providing resources and building a structure to accommodate women in need of those services from uh, from other states, which I, I'm, I'm quite certain that's that is unprecedented um, in any sort of healthcare space. So, um, so I think the short answer to that is is yeah, um, California is taking a lot of those steps. One of the things I had hoped to ask. Jody about was whether or not they would be providing um, um, or they would be working with other kind of bluer states, the New Yorks of the world, for example, to work in unison with states like California to also provide those types of services so that women on the East Coast that are in need of services don't have to travel um, as far. And uh, I don't know the answer to that. If anybody does, kind of jump into the conversation and, and kind of help us out with that. Um. Avery, you were mentioning I need to kind of open up the uh, phone lines here a little bit. I'm trying to figure out where exactly it is I need to do that because I think there are a couple questions coming up. Give me one second here. Avery, I've actually invited you to speak. I don't know if that's the best way to ameliorate it or not. Yep, I know that's all not good. No, Mike, you're doing great. Um, and nothing else that you need to do on your end. But anybody who's listening, if you'd like to ask a question or want to participate in the conversation, just hit the um, phone button on the bottom right of your screen. And okay. you'll line up in the caller queue and you'll be able to call in and, and talk directly to Mike. So the good news is it's not a technical problem on my side, or at least it's not user error. Um, just have kind of a quiet audience, which is kind of strange for this group because I know all of you guys are more than more than comfortable engaging uh, on Twitter. So just hit the phone button. You'll jump into the queue. There you go. We'll we go got our first there. taker. Okay, here we go. No more GOP, you there? Go ahead and unmute. I like the name, by the way, No More GOP. Can you hear me? I can hear you now. Okay, thank you. Thank you for the name. Sure. <laughs> so, 
so, um, Mike, I've been, I've listened to you. I, I since you were, you know, I call you Mike. I eat numbers for breakfast. <laughs> that tells you how long I've been listening. Uh, one so, of the originals. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you've talked a lot about our concern in the midterms, and if, and the best way we're going to have to change a lot of this is if we vote them out. But there's been a lot of concern about the energy that we wouldn't be able to keep the energy from Roe v. Wade. Now we've had the shooting in Buffalo with white focusing on white supremacy, and now the school shooting. Do you feel like we're like we're starting to harness that energy at all to get us maybe have better outcomes in the midterms? Or what? How, what are you thinking or feeling? Or do you think we can keep it up? I was just curious about: Are we getting anywhere close no. to having a better outcome? So those are great questions. And, and um, look, I think that there's some, what I'm seeing right now is, is really some mixed data. And, and let, me, let me walk through some of it right now for everybody. The first is, um, in talking to a couple of people last night who I work with both on the data side and the political side, I wanted to get a sense of what we were seeing in the Texas and Georgia races. And um, the, 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 the actual work that needs to be done to determine what is happening with turnout it's probably going to take a little bit of time, another few days or weeks, to actually um, let me speak with, with, with as much authority as I would like. But, but here's what I would say. We are seeing right now a, a very energized Republican base. The turnout is there, and it's as strong as I have seen it any time that a party is completely out of power. It's Remember back to 2018 – when Democrats did not control the House, the Senate, or the White House, there was a very um, strong energy, a lot of fear, a lot of anger, a lot of concern, and that was energizing Democrats to drive out in record numbers. 2018, Democrats turned out in numbers that I have never seen in the midterms in my entire life and career, okay? It's also been part and parcel of what Republicans do when they don't control any branches of government. We'll set aside the Supreme Court for just a moment. And that type of energy and enthusiasm is one of the key indicators that we do look out, uh, look for to see what the actual midterm numbers are going to look like. So I'm going to take that data point and I'm going to set it aside because I'm going to be looking for other data points, uh, including historical trends. And all of you are very, very keenly aware that the party uh, in power historically has not done well um, in, uh, in the midterm elections. It's also a very important data point. I'm going to set that aside. Um, we'll also look for what we call the generic ballot numbers. And the generic ballot is when all these pollsters ask, would you rather see Republicans or Democrats in power? And here we are starting to see Democrats considerably close the gap. A few weeks ago, just as recently as a few weeks ago, Republicans enjoyed a seven or eight point advantage. Now we're seeing uh, polling as close as one point down or even in the, in the NPR poll that just came out, two points up. Uh, very important data point. Set that aside. That's a good plus one for the Democrats. Biden's numbers, and here's where I get into a little bit of trouble, speaking a little bit of truth to everybody, but that's kind of what I do. Biden's numbers um, are soft and most concerning, they're soft with Democrats right now. That's both good and bad. And here's why. It's bad uh, because they're soft. You want these as strong as they can possibly be and as energized as can possibly be. And they're not there at this moment. 
But what I am convinced of is with the right messaging and the right tactics, this lower propensity, and that, that term we use lower propensity means less likely to vote, can actually be galvanized quite quickly. This is not a prospective Republican vote. These are voters that are never going to vote Republican. The challenge is can you energize them enough to actually show up and vote for the Democrat on the ballot? These are those voters that showed up in 2018 en masse. They showed up in huge numbers. They showed up again in 2020. But just enough of them don't have that same sense of urgency and or concern that they had in 18 and in 20. And that's going to be the real trick for Democrats. That's what they're going to have to do is if they can match those performance numbers, if they can get back to 18 numbers, get back to 20 numbers. I think that the prospects of doing actually quite well in the midterms is there. And if you look at the issues matrix that's developing, it's significantly different than what we were seeing just four or five months ago. When the economy and the inflation were the driving issues and the pullout from Afghanistan were on the minds of voters, Biden's numbers were soft, the Democrats' numbers were soft, and then you started to see Republicans get the turnout that they needed And you are also seeing Republicans get those Lincoln Project Republicans back, those college-educated Republican women that I talk about so much started coming back into the fold. And then you had Republicans win in Virginia. You had Republicans win in New Jersey. You had Republicans have a really great off-cycle elections. You saw continued movement rightward by Hispanic voters. All of this combines to say, Uh, that issues matrix, as long as it's focused on inflation and the economy, is not going to be good for the Democrats. But, and this is very, very important, if you have been listening to me, and if if you do call me (laughs) Mike, I eat numbers for breakfast in Madrid, you have been listening. I mentioned back in June, January, February timeframe, this refrigerator hum of the January 6th hearings. I also strongly suggested that the best political timing for the announcement of those hearings and Garland's DOJ uh, issuance of subpoenas and bringing um, charges would be in the summer, uh, uh, early, mid, uh, I'm sorry, midsummer to late summer timeframe. That's essentially where I think those are going to be. And you add on top of that, the elimination of Roe, which was completely uh, not unforeseen, the timeframe was unforeseen, and um, you add in this, this rash of, of shootings, which unfortunately has resurrected itself again. And what you have is an issues matrix that significantly um, harms Republican prospects for taking over. And the reason why is this. On both gun control and abortion rights, the overwhelming majority of Americans don't support the Republican Party on either of those positions. These are largely secondary positions, and what that means is the one-issue voters on both gun control and abortion rights are already baked in. The vast majority of voters aren't one-issue voters on those issues, but the fact that gun uh, violence has gotten so out of control and the fact that the threat to Roe versus Wade is existential, meaning it's, it's absolutely real and it's going to happen, is going to move those numbers up in the concern, uh, it's going to move the concern of those issues up in the minds of voters. And that is already why we are seeing a closing in the gap 
of the generic ballot that I mentioned earlier. Inflation is not getting better, but Biden's numbers are coming up and Democrats on the generic ballot are doing much, much better. Why is that? The answer is because the issues matrix that are concerning voters are starting to benefit the Democrats. And I think that they will continue to move into that direction heading into the fall. Two quick caveats on that, and hopefully I'll wrap up. Sorry about the long answer. But the, 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 the first caveat is the November elections are a long way away, and a lot of things are going to happen. Something extraordinary could happen in Ukraine. Uh, something, Putin could do something um, extremely egregious. There could be um, a, a whole host of issues that could change the dynamic of the issues set. And perhaps most importantly, as soon as New Hampshire finishes its one line it needs to draw for its two congressional districts, we'll essentially have a better sense of which party is going to be structurally advantaged in the midterms. And even though the generic ballot is an important indicator, we test the generic ballot nationally, which means we're not really looking at the 15 to 20 competitive districts for a generic ballot number. That once we have those actual districts drawn, we can go in there and do polling and take a better sense of how Republicans and Democrats feel about the prospects of both parties. So long, long way of saying here is um, the Democrats are in much better position than I thought that they would be in January, largely because of unfortunately issues we could not see, like Roe versus Wade and these shootings, uh, and they are moving the issues matrix off of the economy. That helps the Democrats. The structural advantage, which we were worried about being a colossal disaster for the Democrats with redistricting and benefiting Republicans did not happen. That's also good news. So all of the signs indicate that the outcome of the midterms are going to be much closer than we were expecting. But I would still historically bet that it is going to be the Republicans who do take over, at least marginally at this point in time. And I can guarantee you, of course, those things are likely to change because they always do in politics especially with four or five months time ahead of us. So I hope that answered okay. Oh, that was, that was great. And I don't know how many people are waiting behind me in queue. I have one more question, but if a lot of people are waiting, I can tweet it to you. No, go ahead. You can jump in. It doesn't look like there's anybody in the queue. If you want to jump in with another question, folks, go ahead and jump in. But, but in the meantime, go ahead and ask it. Okay, so, okay, so one of the things that, um, you know, with the Roe v. Wade, I've heard people talk about the – kind of the Republican middle class little secret that there are a lot more people sitting in queues that have either had or got their daughters an abortion for whatever reason, but found it necessary and the bright choice for their families. They don't necessarily talk about it. They'll stand around in the church and go, oh, no, we, you know, we're not doing that. But the truth is there's like this dirty little secret running around. Do we think there's any validity to that, to pulling more Republican women over to help vote for the Democrats to, to change this? Do you, does that have any power in this, or is that even something you can gauge? That's a great question. Let me try to answer it by framing it a little bit differently, because obviously okay. there is some truth to what you're saying. The question is how much truth is there, right? And that's something that we can't professionally quantify. But the way we'll say it is this. Most of those people... Um, regardless of how many there are, um, are, are comfortable 
voting for pro-life candidates because the the threat of Roe going away or the elimination of abortion rights is not real. Once it becomes real, those people will absolutely move and shift their votes. They are overwhelmingly, by the way, uh, women. These are overwhelmingly female voters, not all, but, but, but mostly. And we are already seeing that shift happening. I predict that after the row, uh, after row is overturned in the next 30 days, you will see another pop, another movement in the generic ballot that will continue to favor the Democrats because a lot of those women specifically, and we'll look at the polling, but I'm convinced it will be women, Republican women that will be shifting towards the Democratic ballot. Um, the question will be how much, and perhaps most importantly, can it be sustained through November or will other issues take precedent? But I think your instincts are right. There is no question it is happening. The problem is there's no way to quantify how significant it is. Uh, we'll just have to use our traditional polling techniques to, to kind of keep an eye on the situation. But great questions, though. Thanks for asking them. I'm going to jump to uh, the next person in the queue. Uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, keep bringing those questions back. Uh, we're going to be doing this every week. So thanks so much. We'll be doing this all through the midterms to make sure that we're keeping you guys up to date on questions like this. I hope it was helpful. Oh, thank you, Mike. Thank you. You bet. Okay. You're on mute. Next caller. Go ahead and jump in. Unmute yourself and then go ahead and uh, let's see what you got. I'll see if I can be helpful. Hi, Mike. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. I'm also a longtime follower. Um, I live in CA48, or what was the prior CA48, and went door to door to get Dana Rohrabacher out of office and get Harley Ruda in. Okay. I'm wondering what are the tools that any of us can use on this call to try and get support the candidates that we choose and get out the vote for those candidates. That's question number one. Second question, and I'll go ahead and go on mute because I'm out on a trail walking. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's good to get Love exercise, that. right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, second question is, what can we do to motivate the men to vote? I know that the abortion issue seems to be a strong issue for women and motivating for women. My husband's motivated. My male friends are motivated. But what can we do to get the vast majority of men motivated to see that this is an issue that impacts every single one of us of childbearing years and not? Yeah, two great questions. Um, so the first one um, was related to kind of what kind of tools can, uh, can you use right now to kind of make a difference in these, in these campaigns? So if you're working on a congressional district specifically, like this caller just was, I'm going to offer a couple pieces of advice here. Uh, one of them, the first one, is a little bit unconventional, but I think it's extremely important, and it's probably contrary to what you hear a lot of pundits say um, on Twitter, on social media, and even on cable television. And that is this. I really firmly believe that campaign contributions at this point in time should be going to one of two areas. It should be going into the issues specifically, organizations that fight specifically for the issues that you care about most. And two, this is very important, they should be going to the party organizations that are building the infrastructure that affect the outcomes of campaigns. You'll notice I did not say they should be going to candidates. And this is going to make a lot of political consultants upset, but let me explain to you why that is. 
The reason why is because in all of the competitive congressional districts in the country, and there's only going to be about 25 nationwide, all of those campaigns will be what we call fully funded, meaning they will have far, far, far more money than they need to communicate their messages and their messaging. There's going to be more than enough money to buy all the television commercials, more than enough to buy all the mailers, all the online buy, all the staff. They're going to be completely fully, their cup is going to be overflowing. What they're not going to be investing in is the registration numbers and the get out the vote operations that the parties traditionally rely on uh, and, and are looked to to lead in that regard. Candidates, by and large, do not invest in voter registration efforts. That is something that the party does, but it's critically important in terms of closing the gap. So my advice, uh, it might change a little bit as we get closer to the elections, but probably not, because you have to remember, not only does uh, the NRCC have $120 million cash on hand, but the DCCC, both, both campaign arms of the House Republicans and the House Democrats are sitting on $120 million. I just told you that we're only going to have 20 competitive races. That means there's $100 million for 20 races. And they haven't really even started the big fundraising yet. Okay, We don't talk about campaign finance this way, but this is absolutely what's going on. Every competitive race on both sides is going to have more money than it can possibly spend. Quit giving them money. It's not that you don't support them. The best thing you can do is go to the campaign as you are in California, I think 48, the old 48, and go volunteer. Go help walk precincts. Go help make phone calls. Join a digital team if you've got that kind of skill set. Do everything you can, but your money is not best spent giving to the candidates. I know most people, most political consultants would probably jump through the phone right now and grab me by the neck and try and shut me up. But that's the reality. Your money is much better spent giving to organizations that can get other pro-choice women out or gun control advocates or helping them build out the list of one issue, single issue specific voters to drive their vote out or increasing party registration. So a little bit of uh, unconventional wisdom there, but take it from me, somebody who's been doing races for 30 years. All of those campaigns will be more than funded. And I didn't even mention, I didn't even mention the independent money that'll come through 527s and independent expenditure packs, which will outspend the already um, full campaign coffers of the candidates themselves. So there's just an extraordinary amount of money spent in a very small handful of races. Focus your energies. Uh, in, in volunteer activity, for sure, on the ground there, they'll know what to, to do with you and how to help, but spend your precious hard-earned dollars in places where it's going to actually make a difference. Um, I hate to say this, but I forgot the second question because I took such a long time doing what Mike Madrid does, which is answering these questions. Um, so what was the second part of the question? And let me let me try to jump on that. Sure, thank you, and I appreciate your answer, and that's good, because intuitively, I have felt that supporting individual candidates was not the most productive use of, of monies that I was donating, so I yeah. appreciate your perspective on donating to um, the causes that are going to help get those candidates elected. They probably yeah. have far more firepower than, you know, my donations as well. That's right. Um, the oh, second motivating, question men. Is, Mo motivating men. Motivating yes. men. 
Yes. Okay. Great question. Let me talk a little bit about the difference between men and women and how they've developed and politicized. The first, and I think you, if you've been listening to, to, to me and some of the talks on the Lincoln Project, um, I was very clear about, about this. It's kind of one of the funny anomalies, but women, um, maybe it's not a shock to some, w- women are far more open-minded about receiving information than men are. Uh, they're much better constituted at processing changing dynamics than men are. They are they are generally, not all, but they are generally far less ideologically rigid than men are. And they also change their political um, opinions through the course of their lifetime. If you look at 18 to 25-year-old women, their voting patterns and the issues that drive and concern them are very different, radically different, than what they are between when they're 35 and 55. And they change again uh, over at, at, at ages over 50, 55 years old. There's really three different distinct times that you can communicate with female voters depending on where they're at in their life cycle. Men really don't change that much from the time they turn 18 and develop their first political opinions. They simply get more dug in and more rigid and more kind of stuck in their ways and more convinced that they were right when they were 18, even when they're 58, 68 years old. So we do spend more money and more uh, effort in understanding uh, what we call the female head of household. And it's not just because, it is not just because they are more open-minded and they are more amenable to different messaging. It's also because women have a stronger tendency to make their household more civically engaged, uh, especially when it relates to having their children and adult children um, begin the process of voting and assist them in developing and discerning their political attitudes to begin with. Um, What we have seen is when there is movement amongst men, that that movement generally, not always, but, but, but often enough that it's measurable, changes often when the female head of household becomes more passionate, more focused, and issue-specific. We saw that, for example, in the Lincoln Project, where in 2016, there was a divide, a division between men and women, a small gender gap. That gender gap got really big in the 2018 election cycle. And then we saw a narrowing on both sides. Women actually moved slight white women, excuse me, white women moved a little bit more back towards Trump in 2020 from 2018, but men moved away from Trump and towards Biden. So men are very oftentimes a lagging indicator, but what does motivate them and what does change their issues and positions on the margins is when they have a female head of household, um, (laughs) I'm going to put this diplomatically, um, enthusiastically encouraging them to either show up or change their mind. Is that fair? I would definitely agree with that. And I've seen it in my own house. So in the end of He's listening to you. He may be, he may be pretending like he's not listening to you, but he is listening to you. <laughs> um, thank you so much. How's the, the walk is going? I agree. I and I, I think that's spot on. Yeah, it's beautiful. Uh, just uh, hit the trail close to the beach, so it's great. wish I could do a screenshot and show you the view. Good for you. Thanks for joining. Looking forward to having you as a regular caller with some of these great questions, and thanks for being uh, politically active and involved. It's helpful, and it's making a difference. 
Um, if you Mike, have any I questions, appreciate your time. Oh, always. Absolutely. If anybody has any other questions, uh, just hit that phone um, icon on the bottom right. I think it is on your phone. I don't have it on, on my app because I'm speaking. Uh, it'll put you in the queue. Happy to answer questions about any of these topics or other topics. Um, don't want to go on too, too far uh, into this because I know we started out with the discussion on abortion rights. I'll speak a little bit more about that now, but feel free to ask uh, any questions that you have. And again, as we start working and building community here on the call-in app, I want to make sure that I'm answering the questions that are important to you, uh, whether it's the polling data that I think we were uh, hopefully helpful with in the course of the last election cycle, uh, dissecting specific races. I think many of you follow uh, Chuck Rocha and I on our Latino Vote podcast, which is going to be a critical part of the electorate. Um, all of these things that are designed to kind of help you understand a little bit more about the way practitioners approach races, the way we look at these things a little bit more differently than both the media and the average voter, um, and why we make some of the decisions that we make so that you can kind of have, I think, a better understanding of what often looks like um, ridiculousness or silliness or obstinance, um, and maybe get a better sense of what it is that we're trying to accomplish. So uh, let, let me, uh, uh, until we get a couple more callers, I do want to speak a little bit more about some of the activism as it relates specifically to the um, abortion and abortion rights issue and fight. It's a question I have been getting a lot, and it's a really interesting one that is related to Latinas, Hispanic women, and the abortion issue. A lot of people have been mentioning to me and asking the question, is this rightward shift that we're seeing with Hispanic voters because they're socially conservative? Is it because they're uh, largely Catholic, we're largely Catholic, is it because of the abortion rights fight? Uh, in short, the answer is no. And I want to speak a little bit about that. Uh, there is one caveat, and I'm going to start with the caveat, and that is evangelical Christianity is growing amongst Hispanics, especially with the recently migrated. Uh, there has been an erosion of membership and affiliation with the Catholic Church, um, and we are seeing a... Um, a, a correlate rise in, in evangelical Christianity. In other words, Catholic Hispanics are leaving the Catholic Church and becoming evangelical. And when that does happen, there is more of a motivator on things like um, opposition to gay marriage, concerns about cultural issues that tend to be more dominant uh, on the progressive side of the Democratic Party, and, um, and they become much more active members in the pro-life effort, pro-life cause. So that's almost entirely exclusive to, to evangelical Christianity. We have never seen that with Catholics, um, ever. And a lot of that really relates to the ambivalence, really, and, and I use this term endearingly as a, as a lifelong Catholic. There's a certain ambivalence on social issues as it relates to Mexican Catholicism. Mexicans, Hispanic, Mexican-Americans, um, um, most Hispanics tend to be compelled much more by the social justice aspects of Catholicism, as opposed to the, some, the the more the more rigid social issues of of both gay marriage and uh, the abortion issue, um, so it's not Catholicity at all. Um, in, in, and in fact, there's almost sort of uh, a relatability with the positions that Nancy Pelosi, for example, has taken as a, a, a devout practicing Catholic uh, who uh, is being denied communion. Um, by her, her bishop. That, that's, a, that's a very serious thing for a Catholic to be denied communion. Um, 
along with with uh, you know President Joe Biden, who we oftentimes forget is is Catholic. So a lot of the leadership in the Democratic Party are kind of um, um, are Catholics, and there's a certain relatability because of the public policy positions that they take, as opposed to the the socially conservative issues that they've taken. So um, I think it would be a big mistake for Republicans to lean into those socially conservative issues as a way to expand their reach in the um, Hispanic community. I have no doubt that they will try, but the greatest likelihood of what is is going to happen is there will be a further increase in polarization where they will lock in that evangelical vote, nominally pick up some Catholics who are are very pro-life because that obviously does exist, but the other in, uh, intended effect will be uh, energizing and mobilizing 18 to 25-year-old single Hispanic women who are pro-choice. So I think it's probably a net loss for Republicans, not a net gain. Uh, looks like we got a caller in the queue, so let me take another phone call. Em, are you there? Hi. Yes, I'm here. Am I? Is it right? Sorry, new app. Still figuring out how to use it, and so 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 excited to actually uh, speak to you, my hero. I brought you up on stage, and that was probably a You've got me what? Speaker here. I'm supposed to make you a call around. I'm realizing. So give me one second. I'll take your question. Okay. Okay. Of course. Uh, let me figure this out. You know what? Let's go and let's just run with it right, right now. I'm gonna have. My question is, when you talk about evangelicals in a Latino community and you talk about uh, evangelicals in the white background, my experience is those are very, very different when the things that you've been talking about, like on politicology, as far as white nationalism and different things, they seem like two very, very different categories. And I was just wondering if, um, you know, I've been around Hispanic evangelical churches and around white evangelical churches. I was just interested in your thoughts on kind of the strong, the differences and similarities. When I describe myself, I certainly would never use the word evangelical in English at this point. It's just too horrifying. But I don't know if that's an appropriate word or just I'm interested in your take on on the differences in those two. And I'm, I will certainly answer this, but I'm actually more interested in your take on this. And I'm wondering if you can kind of share a little bit more about what the differences are that you see, because as somebody who is uh, my, my guess is, um, and again, this is a pure guess. It sounds like you, you attend uh, church services probably regularly. Is that fair to say? I do okay. with my teeth gritted more and more of the time, but yes. Yeah. I do. Uh, and so did you come from a Catholic tradition and move to a different one? No, I was raised and probably 10, 20 years ago, I would have called myself evangelical, Mm -hmm. but then started the path away from that term, particularly when I was in, I started my interracial marriage. And that was just, you know, I think that turned the corner for me a lot faster and woke up some things in me a lot more quickly. But I did also attend um, an evangelical Hispanic church, a Mexican-American church in San Diego, California for about a decade. This is, guys, Um, everybody, I want to listen really intently to Em. She's going to give us a real lesson on some really important (laughs) stuff right now because this this is really, especially with the interracial uh, marriage element, going to be a real master's course in the politicization of of how people develop attitudes. Thank you for sharing. If you, if you don't mind, and if that's okay, sharing a little bit about 
your uh, your journey from how you started in what faith based community, and then specifically that change based off of the interracial marriage. You okay yeah. with that? Oh yeah, I'm honored, Mike. You don't know what a yeah. hero you are to me. I am yeah, in awe right now. So yes, I was raised by a Presbyterian pastor in a wonderful, warm, loving community, and I'm fascinated now that even back then, my parents did not buy into the focus on the family and the just that whole wing of stuff that to some seemed innocuous back then and has turned out to not be innocuous at all. Was this so mid, I, the mid, mid 1990s? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This is the rise of the Christian coalition in the Ugh. Republican party and kind of a really strong emphasis where the, where we started to begin to see me as a pro- political professional in the Republican party, a nexus between things like the Christian coalition um, and the focus on the family issues and the overt use of the Republican Party of the evangelical church community to politicize it. And this was really where I don't want to say the seeds. The seeds have always been there. But there was a real aggressive push to politicize uh, these these churches. So sorry about the background. And keep going. This is really, oh. really good stuff. Thank you. Yeah. So somehow, even as that was developing and uh, most of my peers, my father as a pastor and as a parent, just he he said, now I've asked him recently about it. And he said, no, he just felt like something was not right there and it was in a bad direction. So I grew up in that church. When I went to college, I started attending an African-American church. And then I worked in San Diego and attended um, a Spanish bilingual. Well, no, it was predominantly Spanish speaking church. Um, so then I was kind of out of the evangelical church. The, the white evangelical church, but I was involved in the Hispanic even or Mexican American evangelical church. Um, and then went to different churches. I actually went to church in Texas at a, like a mega church that was, you know, kind of, I don't know what. And then I married my husband who is Haitian American from Haiti. And that was, I was already not happy in some situation. Like I was already very careful about what kind of community I worshiped with. But that one, like some things, once I married my husband, it started to say like, I, you know, it raises your awareness. I had the privilege of not being aware of some things. And so now we have three children and we're in a church that honestly, Mike, we're like trying to figure it out right now because it has some elements of things that I'm so uncomfortable with. And, um, it's just, I really, it's really a confusing time. And it's become to the point where, you know, as a Christian, I'm afraid to say I'm a Christian. I don't, I tell people we have an activity on Wednesdays. <laughs> I don't tell people yeah. we have church on Wednesdays because I don't want to associate with that. That is fascinating. I wish, I wish I was still in the classroom at USC uh, and had met you because I'd love to bring you in and just how you talk to the course on, on, on politicization. I mean, you're, you're obviously grappling with some really interesting things as it relates to religious identity, but also racial identity um, in, in a changing America. And, and what you're experiencing is really important in understanding the way the electorate is changing. And it, it's very complicated. It's not, it's not just kind of the, uh, um, uh, you know, Republican or Democrat issues. There's a whole range of complicated I'm, I'm sorry, are you cutting out for others or is it just my connection? Oh, I'm sorry. Am I cutting out people, yeah. folks? For me, at least you are. Okay. Am I still cutting out or am I, is it better? No, you're better now. Okay, let's try this. So I apologize for that. 
Um, look, essentially what is happening, and again, I'm, I, I am going to be studying quite a bit on, on what I kind of call American Christianity because I think it's really fascinating. One question I want to ask you really quick. Is your father a Presbyterian pastor? Was he an immigrant? No. I mean, his parents were immigrants, but he was not. No. no. Yeah. So, so, so you're the granddaughter of immigrants. Uh, or maybe the great-granddaughter. Yeah. Great-granddaughter. Okay. So, um, um, but immigrants well, well, from Sweden, which is a little different from. Some oh, that's people. God. That's even more fascinating. Wow, <laughs> I, you're you're like a case study in, in uh, 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 American Christian identity. Um, um, so so let me let me let me. Wow, sweet, Swedish um, Presbyterian. Okay, that, that actually makes a little bit more sense. But I never would have guessed because you, so your father is Swedish, your mother is Mexican. No, I'm I'm just white. My father's Swedish. My mom is British. Uh, I mean, American from Scottish British roots. But you went but to Spanish speaking evangelical church. Yes, I'm fluent in Spanish. I learned it in school and love love languages, love all of it. So, yes. Oh, that is so that is fascinating. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't I'm kind of a, uh, I don't even know exactly what to say. There's so much there's so much here. Let me let me just kind of broadly explain what is happening with with uh, religion as it relates to politics. But gosh, I would love to follow up with you and just kind of learn a little bit more about your trajectory because in terms of politicization, um, I don't want to say it's unique. It seems like you're very aware of all the different aspects of it. But 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 having said that, what we are finding is that the correlation in religious identity and voting is actually very correlate to how engaged you are with your church community. So it's the reason why I asked you, and um, if you if you go to uh, church services weekly, and because if you do regularly, uh, more often than not, you tend to be more politically conservative. If you do not, if you're kind of in the Catholic faith, we call them you know Easter and Christmas Catholics, you mm-hmm. tend to have a much more left leaning uh, political ideology and affiliation. It's why Catholics are basically evenly split between both parties. Um, and it's directly correlate to how active and involved you are in your faith community. And it is not something that is specific to Catholics. It's something that's very specific uh, to all people, um, all people of faith. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're uh, Christian, evangelical Christian, or whether you're Catholic. What really matters is how active and engaged you are in your faith-based community. So we literally ask this question at the end of the polls. Um, how often do you go to church services? Is it never, is it once a week, or is it just a few times a year? Because asking that one simple question tells us if you're going to be politically conservative or not, and it doesn't matter what faith you believe in, which is kind of interesting and fascinating uh, in and of itself. So um, I hate to do that, but your question is so involved. I'm going to have to leave it there for now, Anne, but I am going to ask you to follow up because I am interested in learning a little bit more about about how your political trajectory has developed. Oh, I would love that. Yes. Okay. Great. How do, I just, like, how do I do that? Text you? Is that, I don't know. Yeah. This new app. Yeah. Yeah. Just text me or, or uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, direct yes. message me there, or I will, um, um, you can, you can um, send it in the, um, in the chat, in the live chat, any contact information, or, or you can message me on this app. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I'm a big follower of yours on uh, Twitter, so thank you. Kept me calm in the election, so thank you, thank you. Thanks for joining us, and I hope to, hope you'll be part of this because this is your insight will be really helpful for our discussions. Thank you. Thank you for your time so much. You bet.
Do I think, do I need to leave as a speaker? Is no, that how I'm, I... no, I'm, I'm going to remove you right now. Okay. Got it. Kevin, uh, you're on with us. Just unmute and go ahead and ask your question. Hi there, Mike. Thanks for taking my call. I, um, I live in California in central California, and I was interested what your take was on in particular, the Hispanic second generation population in California, their propensity for conservatism. It, it seems you're relating it largely to, um, or at least correlating it to church going habits, but it seems to me that they are in, in entirely possibly a, um, sleeping giant of centrist conservatism. I don't mean any to say this type or that type, but um, in the state, and, and that might be wishful thinking on my part as more of a conservative leaning person. Um, what was your, what is your take on how this uh, sleeping giant, you know, 50% of the state could shape the state in the years to come? Uh, there's no, yeah, Kevin, great question. Very familiar with the Central Valley and Hispanic voters there. So let me uh, share a little bit. But but I'm going to answer the question directly first, yes. okay? Because it's a really important question, and it's one that I've been spending a lot of time on. I actually believe that the rising Hispanic vote in America is going to moderate both parties. Mm -hmm. And here's why. I think I think as we see this rightward shift of Hispanics moving uh, they're moving largely, not entirely, but largely based off of economic populist ar uh, arguments. The Hispanic voter is really the new Reagan Democrat. These are blue-collar people with, uh, and I hate to use the term conservative values, but they're really blue-collar values. And I'll explain a little bit more of what that means. But they are the largest and fastest growing of the non-college-educated workforce in America, and the non-college educated voter is rapidly consolidating under the Republican banner. Why is that? The reason why is because increasingly Latinos, Hispanics are the workforce engaged in industries like agriculture, energy, manufacturing, and construction. If that sounds like the Central Valley, you're exactly right. It's the Central Valley, right? Those are core industries in the Central Valley, and it's why there is a little bit more of a conservative lean. But when we say conservative, we automatically go to socially conservative. And as I mentioned, most Hispanics, especially Catholic Hispanics, are very ambivalent on these social issues. These are not driving issues for the vast majority of Catholic Hispanics. For some, it certainly is, but for most, it is not. Evangelical Hispanics, very different situation. These are socially conservative, and they are about a third of the Hispanic electorate. Why Can I ask are, you just one question? Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, I'm, not your framing, I'm not your framing on how you're um, conceptualizing this, because I 100% I agree uh, that when you're talking about Reagan Democrats and so on, or blue dog Democrats, uh, that it's more akin to that than a Republican conservative, uh, type of, uh, nature of the vote. But on the social issue specifically, I know that Roe versus Wade is the topic, uh, the title here, but yeah. what about the CRT, these things that are coming to the fore that, uh, with the CRT or the pronouns or the, you know, this sort of stuff yeah. that's coming up in schools, I have to imagine that. A lot of these parents are maybe not up in arms about it, but they may not. This is not the sort of thing that they thought they're sending their kid to school for, in my opinion. No, Kevin, really good question. Even better point. 
Uh, I'm going to I'm going to answer the question, but first I'm going to uh, ask you either when you're done or while you're re- while you're listening. Uh, I wrote a piece for the New York Times uh, about exactly this issue. It's, it's called Latinx, <laughs> and and why I don't like the term Latinx is right. the Hispanic voter is turned off by uh, CRT. They're turned off by Latinx. They're turned off by this leftward cultural drift of the Democratic Party. Now, let me be really careful on how I phrase this. I said that they're turned off. They're actually uh, finding it unrelatable. It's not that they're angry about it. It's just that those issues are really viewed as the luxury of kind of wealthier white progressives who have a different (laughs) existence than they do. Those are not the issues driving the electorate in Fresno, Bakersfield, Dinuba, Central Valley schools. These are communities that simply want to be able to pay the rent on Friday, right? Or make sure that their job is going to be there and not taken away because there's no water in, in the fields that they may be managing or working in or the energy patch that they're not able to, uh, to, to, to be shut down on. So the, the emphasis on cultural issues in the Democratic Party is really a function of it becoming a very educated, college-educated party that is focused on these types of issues as a priori in a different information age when the non-college-educated blue-collar worker, again, the Reagan Democrat, this Hispanic voter, is far more focused on meat and potatoes, bread-and-butter economic issues. And these economic populist issues are what is opening the door to um, start recognizing not necessarily that the Republican Party is the party for them, but that the Democratic Party is not the party for them. And those are, that's a very important distinction. Um, and the, 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 lack of, the lack of alignment with the Democratic Party, with Hispanics, is something that I've been researching, writing, practicing campaigns on for 30 years. It usually manifests itself in very low turnout because the, the, the aggression of the Republican Party was turning Hispanics off for so long but the Democrats were not offering an alternative, so you would just have people not voting. Mm-hmm. You're starting to, what you're starting to see now is as the Republican Party becomes a more populist party, and as the Democratic Party leans more into kind of the cultural drift of these issues, more and more Hispanics are moving towards the right. And there's actually going to be a great article that Ron, a guy named Ron Brownstein will be writing for The Atlantic I spent two hours with him yesterday driving through the Central Valley uh, talking about this. It'll probably be up in the next. Uh, I think you'll really enjoy it. Take a look at that New York Times op ed. It seemed to be cutting out there a little bit. I don't know if you're uh, driving. Oh, no, I'm sorry about that. I think I just you, got a weird back spot. there, Mike? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah. Well, I think you're spot on. I, I, yeah, my just a brief reason why I, I thought about this is I've been helping. I'm in Santa Barbara County, and I'm helping a sheriff who would be our first um, Hispanic, um, uh-huh. you know, background sheriff in yes. uh, over 100 years. Uh, it's not a political, uh, politically partisan campaign. It's a law and order uh, thing. But in doing so, I've been able to connect with the people of people of Guadalupe, Santa Maria, North County, Santa Barbara, and. Yeah. 
they're in a, I just wanted to refine that they're not just, and I am also involved in a Hispanic based business in Fresno of all places. Uh-huh. Um, that's very focused on that community. And my partner in that is a, um, a second generation um, Hispanic uh, person. So I've gotten a lot more exposure to uh, these small business owners. It's not just that they're the workers in these areas, but they're small business owners. And one issue that you probably have touched on your articles, and I'm, I'm going to be looking up your articles, is the um, the shut the lockdowns and the A/B testing that went on yeah. in lockdowns in California yeah. that you had. They couldn't go to work. They couldn't run their business because they were in public school. And they're very burned by that, and they're very unhappy about that. They still didn't turn out, like you said, because it's probably hard for them to pull the lever for a, um, a Republican if they feel that they're about deportation or things of that nature. But the but the truth is that they are for law and order. They are for being allowed to run their businesses. They, um, you know, I, if I were a comedian, I would write a skit about uh, who's on first and to show an English as a second language class where someone's learning about pronouns in Spanish, who's a Spanish speaker natively, <laughs> trying to learn pronouns. Yeah. And then at the end of it saying, and now that you know Joe's a he, he's not a he, he's a they, you know, and just the whole thing. And you could make who's on first routine. You, I'm sure you could find somebody to write one of those up and it would really tell the story because they're perplexed. Yeah, and look, Spanish is already a gendered language, so you know, set yes. that aside for a moment too. But the the, the law and order uh, issue, the crime issue, is is one that is particularly resonant with Hispanic voters as well. So there's no question you're on to something. Um, keep doing the good work. I uh, love Santa Barbara County. Done a lot of campaigns there in my day, and um, I appreciate the call, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for the time, and thanks for what you're doing. I'll be reading up on everything you've, you're doing. Yeah, take a look at that. I think you'll I think you'll enjoy it. Thank you. I'm going to jump now to Lance. Lance, you're on mute. Go ahead and unmute, and we'll let's see what uh, what we got from you. You're on mute, Lance. I like the ladybug image, though. There you are, Lance. You there? <laughs> What's funny? My previous profile. My previous. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Hello. Yeah, we're there. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes. Can you hear me, Lance? Okay, good. Yeah. No, for the ladybug. What's funny about the ladybug? My previous profile was a, a, a praying mantis. I, I look. I found both of them in my house, which is kind of way cool. But it's like, wait a minute, kind of creepy. Like, why are they so two things that like live on little tiny insects? Why are little tiny insects driving inside my house? But they. <laughs> that's really a picture. <laughs> yeah, a good news, bad news. Anyway, um, first of all, the whole idea, uh, uh, like right, like like anti-abortion thing. Forgetting about SCOTUS for a minute, but it's so insidious and disgusting, and uh, and uh, and, uh, and 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 again, like Alito, so 18th century. In that, there are really heartfelt people who honestly believe that abortion is murder and it's heartfelt and it's uh, it's sincere. Okay, and they can go have ten kids, and it's sincere. That's that's the proof that they believe that, even if they can't afford them or whatever, and they don't go on welfare. Fine, but it's insidious. It's astroturf. If we need another, we need the next generation of slave labor, and we're going to force women to be barefoot and pregnant against their will, so that we can like make sure we have factories of of of, of people. Okay, it's, it's, it's evil. Okay. That said. I, 
Yeah. Planned Parenthood. I, I hear you. I, I okay, think we're in agreement with all, all these issues. Yeah. Okay, but 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 okay. So, but that you said, question, Lance? yeah. Marching, they have thousands and thousands of local volunteers, and Planned so far they and Nero. I look at the tweets that was happening. It's about court cases and and and, and federal courts, and it's about it's at the federal level and the astroturf, and it's like yeah, it's local issues, quote unquote, and it's like local local uh, offices and stuff. But it's and, and you know and positions that can have something to say about abortion and get it into the state legislature. But whether it's astroturf or not, it's happening. And so yeah. what I don't see is that same effort of NARO and Parenthood with all due respect that are doing that. And the other thing is, there's a red state, blue state thing where, in other words, for whatever reason, yes, it's true, that in the red state where it's already difficult, there's not a lot of contact between the people that are pro-choice with the people that are pro-choice in those red states. Also, I'm going to finish with this, and I'm sorry if it sounds harsh. But elite people in blue states are going to be able to get abortions no matter what happens to Joe V. Wade. Just like rich red state senators, daughters, and sons and wives, and they're not going to not have abortions. The red staters are more hypocritical on this, but the elites on the left are going to be able to get abortions. And I'm sorry, but I think that has something to do with the fact that they're not as zealous about trying to protect abortion rights uh, nationally or state by state. And I'll stop there. Lance, I, I appreciate that input, and I think that uh, you obviously covered a wide range of issues there. I think there's there's a lot of truth to a lot of that. Um, the challenge really becomes, and we're going to go ahead and end on this because we've been going for an hour and a half, um, whether this is sustainable, whether the fight's going to be in the courts, whether it's going to finally be resolved legislatively, which um, whether you agree with the argument or not, that's what the conservatives on the court are saying. Um, the only way to, to 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 put most of this to rest is to come up with a legislative solution that meets the muster of the majority of the court at the time. Otherwise, we're going to be keep fighting this over and over and over again, as we have from 1971 up until uh, this current year. And those rights, of course, will be in jeopardy. So let me end with this. First, uh, let me thank all of you guys for your time. You've, you've stuck with me for quite a bit. I'm hoping you guys find this platform useful. Uh, when I was when oh, I was approached with it, I thought this actually might be a way where I can answer questions a little bit more in depth than I do on some of those Twitter threads because sometimes uh, they can be both confusing, but with just so many limited characters, I can't get in, in into the level of detail that I, I would really like that I think that you guys deserve, and I think that some of you all really enjoy. So I'm hoping this has been helpful. I'm going to be coming up with a whole wide range of topics and guests, by the way. You know me by now. Um, a lot of this stuff is going to be contrarian. I'm expecting to bring on top Republican pollsters um, because I want you to understand the way that Republicans are approaching these races, too. And I think because of who I am, who my background is, I can provide a very different perspective than the chat that you're probably finding in a number of different spaces. One of the things that I've really, really valued about you guys as followers, and one of the things that I take a lot of pride in, is that this is a pretty intelligent um, group of folks who are engaged in pretty good dialogue. 
Um, sometimes I'll get short on Twitter. You all know that too. And I have uh, my own way, my own style. But by and large, um, I do believe that the people who are, are, are following this work are, are thoughtful people who really want to get a better understanding. And that's what I think I want to invest my time in with you, answer those questions, get some of those topics, um, and sort of do a better job of explaining what, what's happening uh, to our society, what's happening globally. I think a lot of you guys know I just got back from an amazing trip in Ukraine that I'll be talking a little bit more about or a lot more about. I want to talk about how that relates to what's going on in this country now, this emerging you know, global structure, um, along with what's sliding away from our own American democracy and how we can all stop it. So with that, I'm going to say thank you all so much. You guys know how to get in touch with me. If you do have topics or areas of interest, um, send them to me. Um, DM me on uh, social media or email me here and message here. It's probably the best way. Um, and I'm also, I think, at certain times when, when, when news is really moving, especially as elections and primaries are happening, I'm going to be jumping on in the middle of those uh, to kind of give you know live uh, um, explanations of what's, what's happening. I think a lot of people, we heard some of it tonight, appreciate some of that explanation as a way of, of kind of calming some nerves. And if I can play that role, I'm more than happy to do that. Otherwise, we're going to be regularly scheduled at 5 p.m. Pacific Coast times for Mic Drop. And I look forward to having you guys uh, next week. Looking forward to the next conversation. Send me your topics, and we'll talk to you guys then. Thanks so much.